0: Well, welcome to Living Hope Church. We're thankful you've joined us this morning. If you have children that are headed down to Children's Church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss Tammy. Um, If your children are staying with us, there are some activities on that back table that they are free to grab and take to their seat. Uh, There's also a sermon notes designed for them that goes along with the sermon that they can uh, grab and fill out during the sermon. Uh, So today we are uh, continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is... Jesus' longest uh, recorded uh, teaching discourse and arguably his most famous teaching in the Bible. And so far in the sermon, we have seen Jesus describe to us who is blessed in the kingdom of God. And what we saw in that uh, is that those that are blessed are those that have recognized their sin and their need for a Savior. And those that are following God by valuing him and others above themselves. We saw that theme continue to play out last week as Jesus called us, his followers, to be salt and light in the world. In fact, Jesus didn't say call us to be salt and light. He said that we are. He said you are salt and light, meaning that everything we do has purpose because we are Jesus' representatives to the world around us. We are to be the light of Jesus at our office, at the mine, at our school, at the swimming pool, at the gym, wherever we go. Everything we do has purpose because we are to point people to Jesus where he has sent us. So that was the first three messages of the series. If you uh, missed any of those and you want to check them out, they're on Apple Podcasts or on YouTube by searching Living Hope Green River. But today, as we turn to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, we will see his message take a bit of a turn. And he's going to turn his attention to the righteousness we are called to. And in that, turn his attention to the law and the prophets. And when you hear law and prophets, or even just the law, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament of your Bible. As you think about the timeline of your Bible, the Old Testament was the extent of the Bible that was written when Jesus was alive. The New Testament of our Bible tells us the story of Jesus, the the story of the early church, and it consists of letters written to the early church and to us as believers. So the Old Testament was their Bible at that time. And when Jesus taught, there were many that believed that he was teaching against the Old Testament or that he had come to abolish and to do away with the Old Testament. But we're going to see quite clearly in this passage that that wasn't the case. In fact, today there are many Christians and even some churches that describe themselves as New Testament only believers or or churches. And they completely ignore the teaching of the Old Testament. And so today we're going to uh, get Jesus' answer on the value of the Old Testament. And we're going to see how he came to fulfill it and how he calls us to view it today as Christians. We're also going to see uh, in this passage how he calls us to greater righteousness than even our greatest human efforts can produce. And we're going to see how the Old Testament law ultimately points us to our inability and our need for Jesus. So hang with me today. This message is going to be a little bit more technical and teachy than most sermons. But I do hope it will provide you some insight on how to read and understand the Old Testament And some insight on how we are called to live and follow Jesus. So if you'll join me, we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. We're going to read through verse 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this chance to gather. Lord, we thank you for your word to study And God, I just pray that you would speak to us today and you would open our hearts and our minds to just the the truth of your word and the importance of your word. And God, I pray that you would uh, reveal any uh, blind spots or areas where we're not following you, Lord, and that we would turn our lives to trust in you. And God, I pray ultimately in this passage that we would see our need for a Savior. If there's anyone here that hasn't experienced your grace and forgiveness, that they might experience it today. And for those of us who have experienced your grace and your love and forgiveness would we, would we be reminded and we, would we walk forward in that as we leave? God, we love you. We thank you for your word. And it's your name we pray. Amen. So as we said in the introduction, when Jesus came and he began his public ministry, he did so speaking of the kingdom of heaven with authority. And he could speak with authority because he was indeed himself God. But as he spoke with authority, many began to believe he was speaking against the law. Or that he was trying to get rid of the law, but he quite clearly is going to answer that misunderstanding. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish or get rid of the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. And we see this fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's multifaceted and it is complete. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in his life, death, and resurrection. And so our first point is simply this. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill it. So let's look how Jesus fulfilled uh, the law or the prophets. Uh, During our Christmas series, we spent a lot of time looking at the prophecies of the Old Testament. And prophecies are descriptions given in the Old Testament of who Jesus, who the Messiah would be. And there are some 300 plus prophecies given in the Old Testament of who Jesus would be. And we see that Jesus fulfills them all. And they vary in scope from where he would be born, what he would be called, how he would die, how much money he would be betrayed for, how he would live, what he would ride into Jerusalem on, and so on. But there are 300 different and unique prophecies in the Old Testament. I found a statistical analysis that one person did of fulfilling just eight of these 300 prophecies. And they put the odds at one in one quintillion of fulfilling eight of them. I don't know what a quintillion is, but it is a one followed by 28 zeros. It's a really big number. number. Or maybe more mind-boggling, this helps me, a quintillion seconds is equal to 31 billion years. It's a big number. Anyway, the odds of one man fulfilling just eight prophecies make your odds of winning the Powerball look like a coin flip. The odds are impossible. Yet Jesus, Jesus fulfills not just eight, but he fulfills all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has come to save mankind from their sin. And we see that evidence in his fulfillment of the prophecies. The second way that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is through his sinlessness and his perfect obedience to the law. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law by his life because he lived a perfect life in obedience to God's law. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now there were times Jesus didn't follow the, the man-made rules that the Pharisees had added to God's law, but Hebrews tells us he never sinned against God's law. He completely obeyed it, and he lived a perfect life of obedience to God's perfect and holy law. His life fulfilled, lived out the law in perfect obedience. And then not only did Jesus obey the law and live a life of sinlessness, but he fulfilled the law by taking the punishment that the law demands. Fowler says this better than I do, so I'm going to quote him. He said, Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law by his death and resurrection because he took the law's punishment for our sins. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The law's demands, if you read it, are pretty simple. You either keep it or you die. Jesus kept it so he didn't have to die. None of us have kept the law so we, the Bible says, deserve to die. And Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law for us so that we don't have to die. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law when he died for us, taking the law's punishment for our sin. And he demonstrated that the price had been paid when he rose again three days later. Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament, to get rid of the teaching of the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill the Old Testament in every way. And he came to pay the price of sin laid out in the law so that anyone who believes in him can experience his righteousness, his forgiveness, and eternal life in him. Lastly, over these next four weeks, we're going to see that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law or reduce the teaching of the law, but he came to reveal the true meaning, the, the true heart of the law. John Stott said it like this, his purpose was not to change the law, still less to annul it, but to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. Jesus revealed the true meaning of the law, which, had to, which has to do with your heart and your motivations, not just your outward behavior. Jesus came to take us from being a religious people who followed rules to a people whose hearts were transformed by relationship with God. And we will see, to merely not commit the act of murder, to not commit the act of adultery, to not commit the act of the sin, Jesus says it's not enough. God's concerned about our hearts and the condition of our hearts. So Jesus came not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law, to reveal the depth of the law, and to make a way for us to experience righteousness and the love of the Father. All right, verse 18. He said, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he begins with this statement, truly, I tell you, or your Bible might say, I tell you the truth. And this statement was Jesus' way of calling attention to something that is important. Anytime you read those words in your Bible, it means pay close attention because Jesus is going to address a weighty and important truth. And we're going to see that statement throughout these next few weeks. So the Pharisees had accused him of abolishing the law. And Jesus here says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to affirm the inerrancy and authority of the law. I've come to affirm the truth and reliability of the law. And so our second point is this. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. But he came to affirm its truth and its authority. And we see this in multiple ways. First of all, Jesus says God's word stands forever. He uses this expression until heaven and earth disappear, it stands. And Jesus is telling us, and he is telling the Pharisees, that God's word, the Bible, is more permanent than, than even the created world in which we live. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of, the, uh, the word of our God stands forever. The law is an expression of God's righteous character. Therefore, it is permanent and is unchanging. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my my words will never pass away. We live in a culture that views the Bible as an outdated, culturally irrelevant book. It's a book that is to be read just as we read the Odyssey or the Epic of Gilgamesh. But Jesus says the Bible stands forever as God's authoritative word. The Bible today and it alone is our source of truth, and we see that starting in verse 18. Jesus says, even the smallest letter or the least pen stroke matters, and it will not disappear. Jesus says, every bit of the law, every bit of the Old Testament matters. He is affirming its authority. Now, this isn't particularly pertinent, but it's interesting. If you have a different version, this verse might read, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And this word jot here refers to the smallest Hebrew letter, which is the yod, and it it looks like an apostrophe in our language. If you turn to Psalm 119, verse 73, you can see a heading that has the letter yod above it. And then the tittle is a small mark, much like the dot on the top of our lowercase i. And it's used to differentiate two letters from each other. There's multiple examples in the Hebrew language, but if you turn to Psalm 119, right before verse 81, you'll see the letter kaf. And if you turn to verse 9, you will see the letter bet or bait. And the differentiating marks between those two letters is a tittle. It's just a little tail on the end. And yet that tiny stroke is what makes the difference between the Hebrew letter B and the Hebrew letter K. Does it matter if you use a B or a K in a sentence? Of course it does, right? It's the difference between ben and Ken, beep and keep, bite and kite. Right? It can change the whole meaning of a sentence. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that every part matters. From the smallest letter to the least stroke of a pen. It all matters. Whereas Francis W. Baer put it, the law remains in force to the last dot, or the last uh, to the last dot on the last lowercase I. James Boyce says we must remember that Jesus was the author of Scripture during the Old Testament. That subsequent to that he was the one who came and lived on earth to fulfill it, and then that he inspired the New Testament writers to interpret correctly the things he had already done. It all matters. From Genesis to Revelation, it all matters. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Jesus in John 10.35 says, Scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus viewed all of God's Word, all of the Bible, as as absolutely reliable, authoritative, and true. All of it. You and I, we don't get to pick and choose which commands we like and which ones we are going to follow. It all matters, and it all ultimately points us to Jesus and our need to follow him. And then in verse 19, Jesus tells us not only does it matter, not only is it authoritative, not only is it true, but it is to be practiced, it is to be lived out, and it is to be taught. So Jesus affirms the Old Testament. He affirms its authority and truth. And then he calls you and I as followers to follow it and teach it. Right? That seems fair enough, right? But if you're like me, this is where we as Christians sometimes get confused. Because we obviously don't follow all aspects of the Old Testament, do we? For example, we have never sacrificed an animal in our worship services, and we never will. But when you read the Old Testament, it is full of animal sacrifices. So why is it that if we don't follow some aspects of it, how do, how do we know what to follow? How do we know what the point is if we don't follow it? So let's talk about that. So the Old Testament law, or the, the rules, are divided into three categories, There are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws in the Old Testament. So let's let's look at that. So the first set of laws are the civil laws. And the civil laws were specific rules for governing the nation of Israel at a specific time in history. When Israel was established, it was established as a theocracy. And a theocracy means that God was not only their spiritual leader, but he was their governing leader as well. And because of that, they were given a specific set of governing rules. Right? These were, rules were like the Constitution, the judicial law, the civil laws, the national laws, the health laws, the hygiene laws of their society at that specific time. But now, during the church age, the theocracy of Israel has been replaced by governing bodies in our day. And, and, and Paul will tell us we are subject to their authorities, not the authority of the civil laws of Israel thousands of years ago. Paul tells us this in Romans 13. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul says the governing authorities have been established by God, and that is who we are subject to today. So we as Christians don't live under a separate set of laws from America, but instead we submit and we follow the laws of the land. God is our spiritual authority. We must follow his moral decrees, but we also submit and follow the authority of the governing bodies where we live, as long as their laws don't break God's moral law. We see a beautiful example of this in John chapter 8, in the first 10 verses. In John 8, the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman that is caught in adultery, and they say to Jesus, the law says we are to stone this woman, and that's what the civil law said. Jesus here famously says, well, whoever is No sin in their life, they can throw that first stone. And the stones are dropped. Did Jesus break the law? No. Because the civil law that day was Roman law, and it did not have that punishment for adultery. Instead, Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you, so go and sin no more. So that's the civil law. So if we're no longer subject to the civil law, then what is the value of it for us today? Jesus says it doesn't pass away, it has value. Well, one thing that the civil law clearly shows is the severe nature of sin and the severe nature in which God views sin. We know this, but sin is serious, and it separates us from God, and that's why we are so grateful for Jesus. The second portion of the law that we are free from as New Testament believers of Jesus are those laws or systems that Jesus fulfilled. These are the ceremonial laws or those laws that dealt with the temple and the sacrificial systems of the Jewish faith. The ceremonial laws pointed forward to Jesus. They pointed forward to the one that would come and give his life once and for all. And the ceremonial laws are fulfilled in his death on the cross. Because of that, we no longer keep those laws today. Hebrews chapter 10 talks in depth about this subject. But we still see the value of those laws today because they point us to Jesus, and they point us to the importance of his sacrifice. So the civil law and the ceremonial law have been fulfilled in Jesus, but the moral law remains as the truth, as the benchmark that we are called to follow. So the New Testament tells us we are no longer subject to the civil law and the ceremonial laws, but we should still follow and abide the moral laws of the Old Testament. We still follow the Ten Commandments and other teachings regarding how to live a moral, God-honoring, God-fearing life. But this produces a lot of confusion amongst Christians and non-Christians. Right? You'll often hear people say that Christians just pick and choose what they want to follow and believe. Or you'll hear that the Bible is inconsistent. But when we understand this and we understand what it says, we realize it is not. The New Testament clearly tells us the ceremonial and civil laws have been fulfilled in Jesus. And it is also quite clear that we'll see in the next few weeks that Jesus endorses the moral law. But as we will see in the Sermon on the Mount, he even expands upon it. He expounds the moral law, not just to our actions, but to our hearts. And we're going to see that over the next few weeks. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And as we will see in the next few weeks, the commands of Jesus were being taught incorrectly by the Pharisees, and they missed the point. The law points us to our need for Jesus, and the law points us to God's desire to transform our heart, and not just our actions. All right, let's look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus is going to shock his listeners. He's going to call us to righteousness, to purity of heart that is impossible for us in our own power. Jesus said this, he said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you have heard of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees, they often face the criticism and the the wrath of Jesus. And so it's easy for us to view them through the lens of the bad guy, but that is not how they were viewed by their culture. The scribes and the Pharisees were the heroes of the Jewish faith. Right, they were the Mother Teresas and the Billy Grahams of their day. Their faith was seen as unattainable by the everyday people like you and I. Anders writes in his commentary on Matthew, This is an enormous statement. It would have shocked Jesus' listeners because the scribes and Pharisees were considered the ultimate example of righteousness. To the Jewish listener, Jesus' statement meant that nobody could enter the kingdom of heaven. To the average person trying to eke out a living, the, the Pharisees were the truly holy people. And Jesus here claimed that they were even not good enough. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that our best efforts of righteousness on our own are but filthy rags before God. We are prone to sin. We are sinners. We cannot earn our way to God. The law and Jesus here, they tell us that. We need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. So that's our next point. The law points to Jesus. We've seen that. And it points to our need for a Savior. At first glance, it seems like bad news that we cannot earn our way to heaven. But what the gospel tells us, this is really great news for you and I. The Old Testament law points to the truth that you and I are all sinners, and we can never in our own power live up to the perfection of God. And this means we are all in need of saving, and it points us to Jesus, the only one who can save. We saw uh, saw that in point one. Jesus fulfilled the perfection of the law, and then he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He took the penalty we deserve and he offers us his righteousness that he earned. So the law, the Old Testament points out our sin, our lack of righteousness and our need for a savior. But the good news is Jesus came to be that savior. The most famous verse in the Bible tells us Jesus purpose. John 3:16 through 18 says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Jesus came because we could not fulfill the righteousness required by the law. So he came and he fulfilled the law with his life. And then he died the death our sin deserved. And then rose victorious over death three days later. If we believe in Jesus, the Bible tells us we are not condemned in our sin. But instead we are made righteous like Jesus. We inherit his eternal life. We are forgiven of our sins and we are saved. The Old Testament points us to our need. It points us to Jesus, and He has come to save any and all that will follow after Him. Back in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15, Jesus said, Blessed are those who recognize their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin because it leads them to Him, and it leads to eternal life. That's what the Old Testament does. It points us to our need, and it points us to Jesus who came to save. And so the question for you today is, is, have you experienced Jesus' forgiveness? Have you experienced his righteousness, his life, in your life? Or are you trying to earn his approval from God on your own like the Pharisees? The Pharisees spent their whole lives trying to earn God's approval. But as we said, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us their good works and our good works are but filthy rags. They couldn't earn his approval and neither can we. We are all in need of a Savior. Righteousness, forgiveness of sins is not based on our works but on the grace and works of Jesus alone. The Bible says, the Old Testament, the law says we all need a Savior. We all need Jesus. The Pharisees concerned their whole lives with outward actions and keeping the letter of the law. But they cared very little about the heart and the motivation of the heart. God desires to transform our hearts, not just our actions. In the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to point out this pseudo-righteousness of the Pharisees. He's going to point out their pseudo-righteousness in contrast with the true righteousness, the true heart change that God desires. Jesus is going to move on and point out six different examples of how the Pharisees were worried about actions and not the heart. And he's going to point out many examples of how they were teaching the law incorrectly in order to benefit themselves. God is concerned about our hearts just as much as our outward righteousness. We're going to touch on the first example of this real quickly, and then we're going to wrap up. This is the first of those six examples. In verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We're going to touch on this quickly because I think this is the easiest one for us to understand and relate with. Because I would guess that there are none of us here that have Probably ever murdered someone. We read the moral law, we read the Ten Commandments, and we feel like, man, this is the one that we are most confident about. And so Jesus quotes the sixth commandment directly. He says, You shall not murder. And the Pharisees, like most of us, they had been teaching and understanding the law as simply, You shall not commit the act of murder. This meant that as long as you didn't pull the trigger, as long as you didn't plunge the knife into someone else, you were good. You could hate your neighbor. You could harbor bitterness towards your neighbor. You could be perpetually angry at your neighbor and still be fine under the teaching of the Pharisees. You could speak badly of your neighbor and still be fine. You could sabotage and abuse your neighbor and you're still good. As long as you did not murder, the Pharisees taught you were not guilty. But Jesus says that teaching, that understanding is missing the point. Jesus is calling us to more as followers. Yes, we can all agree you should not murder and we are thankful that people shouldn't murder us. But he says there's more. We are to be peacemakers. We talked about that. We are to show mercy. We are to forgive one another. Jesus is calling us to more than just not being murderers. God is concerned about our heart, our motivation, our attitudes, our outward actions. And that's what Jesus is going to reveal to us over these next few weeks. Our actions matter, but so too do our hearts and attitudes. And that's our final point. God is concerned with our hearts, our attitudes, and our actions. Again, we will expound upon this with some specific actions over the next few weeks, but know that our hearts matter as much as our actions. Morgan, in his commentary, writes, Jesus exposes the essence of the the scribes' heresy. To them, to the scribes and Pharisees, the law was really only a matter of external performance, never the heart. Jesus is going to bring the law back to the matters of the heart. Jesus is calling us to surpassing righteousness. Righteousness that goes beyond our external performance, but righteousness that transforms our hearts. That type of righteousness is, righteousness is only available in Jesus, and it is freely available to any and all that will follow after him. Jump back to verse 4 real quick. Quick, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who know that they do not have the resources to do these things themselves. And when you confess your sin before God, you are blessed, you are forgiven, and the kingdom of heaven is yours. The prophets point us to Jesus. The law points us to Jesus. The law and the prophets are fulfilled by Jesus. The law points us to our need for Jesus. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is revealing that he is the only way to righteousness. He is the only way to forgiveness, and he is the only way to eternal life. We cannot earn it on our own, but we can experience eternal life, the kingdom of God, if we will surrender and follow Jesus. We can experience a transformed heart if we will follow him. So as we conclude, where are you today? Melinda's going to come and she's going to play, and we'll just spend a few minutes reflecting. But first of all, maybe you are here and you have never experienced Jesus and you need to experience his forgiveness for the first time. You read the Old Testament, you read the law, you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you realize that I am a sinner. Jesus says, blessed are you. He says, if you will confess your sins and you will follow after him, he will forgive you of your sins and you will inherit his righteousness. You will inherit a new heart and you will inherit eternal life with him. Have you experienced his grace and forgiveness? If not, maybe for the first time you need to surrender and trust him today. Or maybe you're here today and you just need to, you've, you've recognized that you have sin in your life, even though you followed him, and you need to confess your sin. Confess your anger, your bitterness, your hatred that you're holding on to. Again, the Bible says if we will confess our sins, we will be forgiven. Or maybe God has revealed not only sin, but wrong attitudes in your life. And you not only need forgiveness from God, but you need to go and make it right with somebody else. You need to go and ask for forgiveness from that person. You need to go and apologize to that person. You need to go and make peace with somebody. Maybe you need to go offer forgiveness and mercy to someone who has wronged you. Whatever it is, my prayer is that God would reveal our need for a Savior. He would reveal the wrong attitudes of our heart. He would call us to repentance. He would call us to life change and heart change in Him. Change, that not just changes our actions, but it changes who we are. So I'm gonna pray for us. And then after I pray, Melinda will play, and I just pray that God will speak to you and you just spend a few moments reflecting in him. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to fulfill all of the Old Testament. We thank you that he came to live the, the sinless life that we could not live. We thank you that he didn't just rest in that, but that he went to the cross, and he paid the price. He, paid the, 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 he took the death that we deserved in our sin. And we thank you that he rose victorious over death, and he offers us his life and his resurrection freely if we, will, if we will follow after him. So, God, my prayer today is that you would just reveal to our hearts the sin in our life, Lord. God, if we've never followed after you, that for the first time we would recognize our sin, that we would mourn over our sin, that we would confess our sin, and that we would follow you. Yeah, we thank you. The Bible says if we do that, we are forgiven. So God, I pray that you today would point to our need for a Savior and that we would experience your forgiveness today. And God, for those of us that are followers of you, God, I pray that you would reveal those areas in our lives where we might not be doing the wrong action, but our hearts are broken. Our hearts are living in sin with wrong attitudes. God, would you reveal those areas where we are missing it in our hearts? God, would you reveal our need for you? God, would you give us the courage to confess our sin and experience your forgiveness? God, would you give us the courage to go and ask for forgiveness from someone else or to apologize and say we're sorry? God, would you help us to be peacemakers, people that show your mercy and grace to others just as you have shown it to us? So God, I pray in these next couple of moments that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us clearly and you would reveal to us where you are calling us to deeper faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God and that you offer forgiveness to any and all that will follow after you. God, may we follow you in our heart and in our deeds this week. We love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. All right, just uh, a couple of announcements for you this morning. Uh, first of all, your new Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere around you. If you fill that out and put that in the box on the back table, we'd appreciate it. Also, where you place your tithes and offerings if you consider this your church home. Uh, in terms of announcements, a small group Bible study meets here at the church from 6 to 7 uh, on Sunday nights, but we are not having small group tonight. Uh, if you have questions about that, come and see me. Uh, youth group and kids night meet here at the church from 6 to 7. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can come see me. You can see Miss Smith if you have questions about youth group. Um, and again, we're always looking for uh, anyone that wants to serve on worship team uh, or in children's uh, church. So if you have questions about that, you can come see me as well. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We hope you have a great week, a safe week. Please be safe in our parking lot. That east wind does not like us, so uh, it might be a little slippery. So be safe, get into your cars, and uh, we hope to see you again next week. You are dismissed.